Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you and walk through the Word Diet. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that position, so get them together and work your way through the Word Diet. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Galatians, the book on the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law and our struggles with legalism. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. I need to do a long introduction to this great book. The book is so important in so many ways. It has been in Christian history, and it is today as well. It's had huge and broad implications for justification and sanctification, evangelism and ministry, how we see ourselves, how we see God. There's just so much at stake here. And there are also some key terms like grace and legalism that require explanation and for us to get clear on what's at stake as we wrestle with these themes. Let's start with the audience and the timing of the book. It's written to a group of regional churches. There are two theories about which ones, those planted on Paul's first missionary journey, that would have been in 48 to 49 AD in the region of South Galatia, or his second missionary trip, which would have been 53 to 57 AD, which is in the region of North Galatia. So this letter was written to churches in a region of present-day Turkey. If it's the first theory, we're looking at the time frame described in Acts 13 and 14 and the evangelism and ministry development there of Paul in places like Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia. If it's the latter theory in the later date, then the reference is to Acts 16.6. It's also interesting that if the early date holds, and this is Paul's first letter, and he would have been a Christian for about 15 years at this point. In any case, it relates to the Jerusalem church's concern about Paul and Barnabas's work with the Gentiles. And what's called the Jerusalem Council's discussion of the same issues in 49 AD. This is a pivotal moment in Christian history. It's in Acts 15 where it's recorded. And if you're not familiar with that chapter, you need to read that as soon as possible. As we work our way through this introduction, it will become obvious how much was at stake in that Jerusalem Council. And so Paul is either writing anticipating the Jerusalem Council, or he's writing in response to the Jerusalem Council, this letter to the Galatians. Andy Stanley notes here that there were virtually no missionary efforts focused on Gentiles until Paul took it upon himself to take the all-nations thing seriously. The first organized missionary initiative Sponsored by the Jerusalem church, though, was designed to undermine the credibility of the first bona fide Christian missionary. And how ironic is that? But the hashing out of these issues is recorded in Acts 15. And again, Galatians is key to understanding that crucial historical moment. So what's the purpose of the letter? Well, it was written to address Jewish Christians who wrongly believed that Old Testament ceremonial law was binding on the New Testament church. Paul calls these people Judaizers in Galatians. 
Hebrews 9.10 says they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. And as Paul will observe, and as other New Testament writers do as well, that new order had arisen, and so the Old Testament ceremonial law was now obsolete. And that's the language that's used in Hebrews 8, verse 13. The term obsolete doesn't mean that it's bad, but it is out of date now and not to be relied upon. In particular, these Judaizers were arguing that circumcision was necessary for salvation, as it had been for the Jews, and that the Mosaic regulations were necessary for sanctification, again, as they had been for the Jews. So why the disagreement? Well, possibly it's from bad motives. Maybe they had a jealous desire to destroy Paul's ministry. Maybe they were trying to avoid criticism from zealot Jews. There's a reference to this in Galatians 6, verse 12. Maybe it's out of self-righteousness. Maybe there's a power trip of maintaining the status quo. In any case, ultimately, they were unsatisfied with the Jerusalem Council's decision. And so we can see this as the beginning of heretics or denominations when there's an unwillingness to compromise and to hold on to true unity. Of course, the dividing line between heretics and denominations is that there's a willingness to compromise when one shouldn't compared to an unwillingness to compromise when one should. In the case of the Galatians, we have a clear example where they should not have compromised, and we'll see Paul model that effectively throughout this book. It's also certainly possible that the Judaizers had good motives and good intentions, that there were going to be inevitable disagreements within well-intentioned desires to integrate Judaism and Christianity. Consider the religious and cultural context. If they had any zeal for their cultural heritage and tradition, you can understand why it'd be difficult to imagine change. The larger issue is that Jewish Christians had a double identity. And we look back and wonder, what's the big deal? But there's no New Testament yet. You know, nothing's been codified here in terms of the relationship between Christians and the law. There's been quite a bit written, but there's much still to be hashed out, at least in terms of what this looks like in everyday life. The Jews were God's chosen people, but it wasn't just being chosen. It was also in contrast to the Gentiles and often in opposition to the Gentiles. And this was rooted in biblical law and God's intention to separate the Israelites from the disobedient heathens. In history, this became especially strong after Daniel's stand in exile in Babylon, and then later the Maccabean revolt in 165 BC with their refusal to eat pork under the threat of death. Gentiles were allowed into the Jewish faith with observance of the law, and there were a number of prophecies that pointed to this, for example, Genesis 12, 3, and Isaiah 42, 6, but they were never fully accepted. And so the punchline here is, did Gentile Christians need to become Jewish first? So, of course, we don't wrestle with that particular question today, but there are still related tensions that are still in our everyday life. How do we understand the role of law in light of grace? I remember hearing Dr. Laura and then reading her in her book on the Ten Commandments, which is very good, by the way, asking why are Christians so excited about the Ten Commandments? If the law has been dealt with and we're saved by grace, then why the big emphasis on law? In Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Christ says he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. So there's still some role for law, especially the moral law, but we also know there's holy liberty in the gospel and freedom in Christ and how unreasonable God's grace is to each of us, even as it's being abused. Related to this, there's the idea of freedom and the potential for that abuse of grace. And so we have the world and sometimes the church selling us the idea of freedom 
that really is a different sort of slavery. There's capital F freedom that Christ allows us, but there's lowercase f freedoms that are sold all the time. We're all slaves to something. In the book of Exodus and throughout the Old Testament, the choice was to become slaves to Pharaoh or kings rather than slaves to God. And the choice, of course, that's best is to be a slave to God. Paul plays with this to great effect in the book of Romans. And finally, there's a bit of a relationship here in what's called hermeneutics. How do we interpret the scriptures and the law in particular? The phrase here is the letter versus the spirit of the law. We see people in the Old Testament and the Pharisees getting hooked on this all the time, and it connects to legalism, that when we interpret things by the letter of the law, rather than, for example, Christ's two great commandments to love God and love others, we get ourselves in lots of trouble. Putting too high of a value on the law usually connects to reading the law a certain narrow way, and that causes all sorts of trouble in our theology and our relationship with others. So I mentioned the Judaizers before, and one way that Galatians can be read is the battle between the Judaizers and Paul. And the method of attack for them was twofold. First, they questioned Paul's authority. John Stott lays out a potential hypothetical argument what that might have looked like. He said Paul is, quote, not one of the 12 apostles of Jesus, nor, so far as we know, has he received any authorization from anybody. He's just a self-appointed imposter. Now, we're not sure that's what the Judaizers said, but it certainly seems likely. But we know that they were trying to trash Paul's authority. They were also questioning Paul's message, and that's still done today. And this comes from many different angles. For example, is Christianity unique? And some accuse it of being too narrow and say there must be some other way. Maybe we could be saved by works. Galatians 2.21 says if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Or maybe it's through universalism. Maybe all are saved, and so the way of Christianity is supposedly too narrow. But again, if that's the case, then Christ died for nothing. If that's true, it also absolves us of any role in accepting the gift that has been granted. John 3.16 says, whoever believeth in him. So there's a role for the believer there. Romans 6.23 talks about the gift of God, but it has to be accepted and opened to be a gift that has purpose and efficacy. Instead, we have Jesus himself, John 14, 6, on the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, or, or Jesus talking about the narrow gate in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. If the Bible is true, then Christ is either Lord, liar, lunatic, or legend. And if we're going to consider him Lord, then we have to accept his definition of the gospel and salvation and those things. The concern in Galatians, though, is different. It's whether salvation is free, and the concern here is that it's too easy. In other words, there must be things we have to do, something for salvation and for God's approval. It can't be that easy. At one level, this is reasonable given our experience and relationships and our ideas of justice. It seems like something must be done for it to align with what we know about life and justice. And it's certainly palatable for the flesh to be able to look good. We want to measure things. We want to compare ourselves to other people. And so there's something attractive about this view. Although these are reasonable questions, ultimately they lead us into heresies. Paul writes in similar terms at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then verse 23, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. It was a stumbling block to the Jews because of the legalism and the works that Galatians will talk about. It can't be that easy. 
and its foolishness to the Greek, who just sees this as absurd and unreasonable. In all of this, we see some close parallels with the Pharisees in the time of Jesus. And ironically, it's from a focus on the law taken too far, or more precisely, what religious tradition had added to the law, taking it in the wrong direction. It reminds me of John 5, verses 39 and 40, where Jesus says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. That's a great passage, right? It speaks to the confusion of the scriptures with the means of eternal life, and that it misses the entire point that if the scriptures testify to Jesus, to whom you must come to have life, then you're missing the point of the scriptures to begin with. The words of the Bible and the Bible itself are not an end in themselves. They are important means to the end of having a robust relationship with God. The NIV Study Bible says here, the Jewish leaders studied Scripture in minute detail. Despite their reverence for the very letter of Scripture, they did not recognize the one to whom Scripture bears supreme testimony. And such legalisms are ultimately idolatry. I like what A.W. Tozer says about the Pharisees. The weakness of the Pharisee in days of old was his lack of imagination or what amounted to the same thing, his refusal to let it enter the field of religion. He saw the text with its carefully guarded theological definition, and he saw nothing beyond. When Christ came with his blazing spiritual penetration and his fine moral sensitivity, he appeared to the Pharisee to be a devotee of another kind of religion, which indeed he was, if the world had only understood. He could see the soul of the text, while the Pharisee could see only the body, and he could always prove Christ wrong by an appeal to the letter of the law or to an interpretation hallowed by tradition. The breach between them was too great to permit them to coexist. So the Pharisee, who was in a position to do it, had the young seer put to death. So it has always been, and so I suppose it will always be, till the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Since this is the Judaizer's mode of attack and the various topics they're going to go after, we then understand what Paul's trying to do with his counter-argument in the book of Galatians. This helps us understand the structure of Galatians. Chapters 1 and 2, he'll be busy asserting his apostolic authority and defending the gospel of grace. Chapters 3 and 4, he'll attack legalism, especially the false gospel of a works-based salvation. Obeying the law cannot save or justified by grace alone. And then chapters 5 and 6 will apply this to how to live the Christian life free from the law and using our freedom properly. All right, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org. And with free paper editions in store at 200 locations, please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we started our introduction to Galatians, including the audience and the timing of the book, as well as the inherent tensions between Judaism and Christianity as the new religion emerged, and in particular, the opposition that Paul was facing from the Judaizers, those who had strayed into disunity and heresy. So now a few more comments by way of summarizing the book. This is a crucial, pivotal book. It's sort of a mini version of Romans, which obviously has great acclaim attached to it, very popular book. But Galatians ought to be right up there in terms of importance and its place in Christian history. It defines the differences between Judaism and Christianity early on. Again, the Jerusalem Council discussion of the same thing in Acts 15 is necessary reading. It also inspired the Reformation, 
Galatians is considered Luther's book, and he called it his other wife. It's been called a letter of emancipation. Freedom is used here more than in any other book. Brennan Manning calls it a flaming manifesto of Christian freedom. And today it's important to understand the extent of God's grace and the dangers of legalism. David Dockery has written that Galatians sounds a clarion call for a vital relationship with Jesus Christ rather than mere religious ritual, for total trust in the Savior rather than dependence on self, for submission to the living Christ rather than subscription to dead creeds, and for a life enabled by the Holy Spirit rather than one ruled by legalistic rituals. And I like what Gerald Borchert says about it. Although Galatians is a brief, at times very rabbinic in an argument and extremely severe on Paul's opponents, it is undoubtedly the place where Paul was forced to define the basic nature of the gospel. Christian freedom, the nature of faith, life in Christ, equality in the church, and the meaning of obedience were all at stake. God had a servant ready for that hour, and God's timing the man called Paul, who was born under the law and reborn in Christ, provided for the church out of the bowels of a seething conflict and exceedingly precise perception of the meaning of salvation in Christ Jesus. And I think that's key. We'll see the phrase in Christ a lot in this book as we see it in Ephesians as well. And that's the key. The answer isn't in church or in the word or in relationship with other people or in ritual or in ordinances. It's in Christ that is the key. And the Galatians were having trouble with that basic truth. In sum, Galatians covers three things, the superabounding nature of God's grace. Salvation is free. God's love is unconditional. Second, the extent and the use of our resulting freedom in Christ. Paul uses that phrase 28 times. Ten of those are in Galatians, and it's only used eight other times elsewhere in the New Testament. So this book has been called the Magna Carta of Spiritual Liberty, the Christian Declaration of Independence. And third, Galatians is about the doctrinal and ethical dangers of legalism. And in all the above, we're talking about both beliefs and behaviors. Doctrine matters, but it's also relevant to practice for individuals and for the unity of community. So now we turn to defining two of the key terms in this discussion, grace and legalism. We'll start with grace. What is grace? We use the term all the time. My favorite definition here is unmerited or undeserved favor. It's common to use the acronym GRACE, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense, and that's nice. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My pastor in Texas, Dwight Edwards, used to call it God's unreasonable kindness And unfortunately, the acronym for this is only GOOK, which is not nearly as exciting as GRACE. But I do think that's a better definition. God's unreasonable kindness. It's amazing, the grace of God. It's also important to distinguish grace from mercy. Grace is receiving something positive you don't deserve, whereas mercy is not receiving something negative that you do deserve. I have an example I like to use. It's kind of silly, but I think it's memorable and gets to the point. If you're pulled over for speeding then mercy would be not receiving a ticket, but only receiving a warning. You should have gotten a ticket, but you don't. And not getting the negative thing that you deserve is what we call mercy. So what would grace be? Well, if the policeman were to hand you one of his donuts, right? That would be grace. You're getting something positive that you don't deserve. 
So the mercy of God is important, impressive, and so on, but it's the grace of God that separates Christianity out from the other religions. Back to the idea of God's unreasonable kindness, it follows that if it's unreasonable, then we need to make sure that we're pushing on the concept hard enough until it seems too good to be true, because it is. God's grace really is that amazing. We call it amazing grace. It is unreasonable kindness. Now, there are concerns about this. We've already talked about, well, that's too easy or that's too narrow. We could also talk about it's too risky, that such grace is prone to abuse. But the grace of God is nevertheless. We commit sin. Nevertheless, God still loves us. We commit sin, and yet the grace of God covers that sin. I remember reading years ago in Chuck Swindoll's wonderful book, Grace Awakening, his argument that if grace is preached strongly enough, it can be misunderstood to lead to or even to endorse the abuse of grace. And Swindoll backs up that claim by noting that that happened to Paul twice in his argument in the book of Romans. For example, chapter 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? But Swindoll notes that by raising that question, Paul has pushed so hard on grace that that question would be asked, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? If the full extent of grace is not being preached, no one will ever ask the question that Paul asks of himself there in the argument in Romans. Swindoll then quotes Martin Lloyd-Jones, I would say this to all preachers, if your preaching of salvation has not been misunderstood in that way, then you had better make sure you really are preaching the salvation that is offered in the New Testament. So can grace be abused? Well, it's certainly possible, but again, we have some misconceptions here. You're not gaming the system if you abuse God's grace. You're hurting yourself. If God is good and knows what's best for us, then following what he says is in our best interest. Sin is not some game we're playing and getting one over on God. We're doing harm to ourselves and to others. When people say that, they don't believe that God really wants and knows what's best for us. 1 John 5, 3, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Romans 5, 6 through 10, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? When we disobey God, we're acting like morons. It's not some game we're winning. We're losing the game when we disobey, when we fail to follow a good and great God. Another angle here is why would anyone respond that way to perfect, unconditional love? Even from a worldly standard, it doesn't make any sense. When you're extended love like this, grace like this, think about a marriage, right? The best response, the easy response should be to follow that. Now, there is some balance here. If you look at the books of James, Hebrews, and 1 John, I think the question would be phrased, if you think you have grace and are abusing it, you better ask whether you have that grace or not. When we don't see any fruit, we and those close to us should be asking difficult questions about whether we in fact have a saving faith or not. So at the end of the day, there are not crystal clear answers on this with respect to every person and every circumstance, but here's what we do know. God's grace is amazing and it is unreasonable. 
And if we're limiting it and we're adding conditions here and there, then we're not understanding and we're not selling the grace of God as it really is. It's not the goodest news that God intends it to be. What we'll see in Galatians is Paul's effort to war against those who have limited grace in a severe manner. The Judaizers have worked to reduce grace both in terms of justification and sanctification. As we'll see, Paul will not let that stand. Lord, may we understand your grace more fully and tell those around us about your great grace. Time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. We're continuing our introduction to Galatians. In the previous two segments, I provide an overview with some of the themes, the audience, the timing of the letter, and so on. And then I defined a key term, grace. The second key term is going to require a lot more time, and that's what we'll be talking about in these last two segments. That term is legalism. First of all, it's interesting that with respect to our two key terms, grace and legalism, it's ironic that Scripture does not record Christ saying grace, although there are things said about him with respect to grace. For example, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Three verses later, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And legalism is only used in Philippians 3.6, Paul describing himself as having legalistic righteousness in some translations. So it's not a matter of a word being used as much as it is something being portrayed instead of defined in the scriptures. One other thing before we move to legalism is that we often think of the New Testament as the place where we see grace, but grace is all over the Old Testament. And in fact, there's some really prominent examples, although it's sprinkled throughout the entire Old Testament. Consider Joseph with his brothers, the Passover lamb of Exodus 12, the scapegoat of Leviticus 16, the way David treats Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9, Ezekiel 16, and Hosea 1 through 3 are some amazing prophetic expressions of grace. And of course, in the New Testament, Uh, You've got Christ's ministry. Maybe Luke 15 is the best expression of the grace of God. But what is legalism? And so let's start by defining it as attempts to obtain justification or sanctification apart from utter dependence on Christ and grace. Romans 4, verses 2 through 5, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And I love Paul's argument here, right? If it's something you earn, then it's not God's gift. It's something that he owes you because you're working. And in fact, it's not by works, it's by grace. It's a gift that must be accepted in faith. Typically, it involves adding to God's word. We see warnings against that in Genesis 3.3, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, and then at the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, 18 through 19. So when we add to God's word, as Eve did in the garden, then we're likely to get ourselves into trouble. One other key distinction to make as we get going here, that legalism in sanctification is a character or worldview issue for some, 
but a specific struggle for all of us. In other words, some of us struggle with legalism as an event, and some of us struggle with it as a lifestyle. All of us struggle with it, but some of us struggle with it more so. So one tool I like to work through this and to teach through it is a reference to Jeff Foxworthy. He's a comedian, and he used to say, you know you're a redneck if. So I've got a list of you know you're a legalist if, or you're struggling with a legalism if you or your group have the following things. Number one, if you are the only ones going to heaven, that's a really bad sign. Number two, if you focus on sins of commission at the expense of sins of omission. Very common for legalists to keep checklists and to make sure they're not doing certain things, but they often miss the sins of omission that are, in God's kingdom, a far bigger deal. Number three, they focus on the sins of others more than their own sin. That's a common problem for legalists. Number four, they adamantly advocate universal solutions in gray areas, something that's not decided by the scriptures, but they have decided that it is black or white. That's a big one. Number five, they say need to much more often than get to. They see much of the Christian life as duty rather than devotion, a burden rather than an opportunity. Often these people complain and whine about life in the Father's kingdom, which should be largely joyous and peaceful. Think about the difference between a young child for whom grooming is a chore versus a teen who's in love for whom grooming is an opportunity. Need to, if you use that in your language a lot, that's a bad sign. Number six, emphasizing behaviors over relationships. Number seven, finding the Christian life to be condemning and joyless rather than alluring and joyful. You find it difficult to celebrate with others. And finally, number eight, equating Christianity with morality and implicitly reducing Christianity to meeting a list. A.W. Tozer calls this a file card mentality. Now, the fact is the flesh tends to go in one of two directions, either towards carnality or being libertine or legalism. And Satan's happy either way. Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis is wonderful on this. Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Consider the loving father and the two sons, the one that's a knucklehead running off to the far country, but then the son that stays at home is the legalist. And the challenge whenever you read that story is, which son are you? Are you the, the wild one? Are you the one that's driven by legalism as the older son is, the joylessness, the thanklessness? the ingratitude, uh, the duty of the older brother is what we're talking about with legalism. Gary Thomas says, focusing on sin to avoid it makes us little different than those who focus on sin to participate in it. One is consumed by sin because of fear. The other is consumed by sin because of enjoyment, but both are consumed by sin. With respect to justification, the libertines ignore grace, the legalists reject it. With sanctification, the libertines trample grace, the legalists abandon it. In sanctification, libertines see Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. In justification, legalists see him as Lord, but not Savior. And in these two directions, libertine and legalism, people often choose the legalistic side to avoid licentiousness and carnality. And it does look more spiritual, but it has negative implications for key aspects of the Christian life, and that's where we turn now. The first of the three areas are one's beliefs about justification, what it takes to be saved, who's saved and who's not, and our beliefs about sanctification, how to measure it, how to proceed, in what strength we operate, and so on. In both cases, it's in one's own strength 
rather than instead seeing both justification and sanctification as in Christ. That's the wording that Paul will use in Galatians and Ephesians in particular, that were declared holy by Christ, that's justification, and were made holy in the process of walking by the Holy Spirit, that's sanctification. Again, Romans 5, 9, and 10 are key here. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more so shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And that life is through Christ in us, the Holy Spirit living in the believer. We are saved in terms of justification by his blood. We are saved in terms of sanctification by the indwelt life of the Spirit. None of this is by our works. None of this is anything that we deserve. Ironically, relying on our own obedience is a failure to live in actual obedience in terms of God's kingdom. So, why does this matter? Well, it affects how I perceive my own walk and thus my perception of how God perceives me. Again, this speaks to the disadvantages of wording like need to. It's not need to, it's get to. Here the legalist often focuses on small rather than big things and misses out on the greater things that God's kingdom has in store. Failure here often leads to discouragement or denial, and success in these matters leads to pride. This is a point that Lewis makes to great effect. Often legalisms don't work in the long run. They may work in the short run, but not so much in the long run. I think about this with respect to parenting and the classic line by Josh McDowell that rules without relationship lead to rebellion. And even if it does work, so to speak, in the long run, it's not working as God wants it to. But the irony is often it doesn't even work as intended in the long run. Legalism also misses the tension that we have within our obedience. Why do we obey? Is it for its own sake, or are we desiring a heart to obey? We engage in habits, but only with the hope of a heart that wants to obey. It's not obedience per se, but developing a heart that is after God's own heart. Francois Fenelon said, Obedience must be loved rather than disobedience feared. Or as I like to say about Proverbs 1.7, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but it certainly doesn't end there. God wants us to follow out of love, not out of fear. Or think about it from God's perspective. He's not about using coercion, right? There's some sticks and carrots involved sometimes with obedience and disobedience, but ultimately it's after voluntary worship, praise, and obedience. That's what God is after. It's not a focus on fulfilling the law, but a focus on building relationship with God that is at hand. Think of an example. If you have a heavy emphasis on tithing, 10% giving, rather than offerings and a stewardship mentality, there's nothing wrong with a tithe. There's nothing wrong with talking about it. But if that's your key emphasis, if that's the only thing you're thinking about and talking about with respect to giving, then you're missing the boat. It's about everything belonging to God's stewardship. 10% is a nice standard to aim for, but it's not the end-all, be-all. But if you sell it that way, then often it's going to be difficult for people to get started. If I'm at 0% and you're talking about 10%, how do I even get going on that? Often you're going to stop at 10% because you've met the standard. What about others who aren't giving 10%? I'm going to tend to judge them. I'm going to 
look at how God feels about me. And if I meet the 10%, I'm going to attribute that to God's favor. And if I'm not meeting it, I'm going to feel like God's disappointed in me. There's just lots of reasons why an overemphasis on a standard or a line in the sand is not and cannot be where God wants us to focus. When we reduce the Christian life to ritual, rules, rhetoric, and religion, it's not the way of the kingdom. Hugh Halter says it takes up a lot of time and money and delivers very little. And he observes that Jesus was sacrilegious with respect to scripture, or at least favored interpretations of scripture, all those healing miracles he did on the Sabbath, and his pokes at social norms, family allegiances, and religious leaders. All of these were products of legalism, and all of them came under heavy criticism and effort by Jesus in his earthly ministry. All right, this is a good time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio, and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're wrapping up our introduction to Galatians. I provided an overview of the letter and spent quite a bit of time on its two key terms, grace and legalism. In the last segment, we defined legalism and started to talk through its impact on our theology. There's two other big points I want to make about legalism and how it causes trouble for us. The first is with respect to ministry and how one relates to unbelievers. There's a number of points to make here. All of them are quite troubling. The first is that it limits the audience to which we sell the gospel, in particular those who are more moral. Michael Richardson said, Jesus often associated with tax collectors, prostitutes, and fishermen. Does anyone really think none of those people used a dirty word in the presence of Jesus? Did none of those people ever drink too much? Yet we don't find Jesus lecturing them about their language or their drinking practices. When we put on the cloak of legalism, we'll find ourselves attracted to certain kinds of secular people and then selling a certain narrow and twisted version of the gospel. And that is not consistent with the ministry of Jesus. Second, it limits the effectiveness of our work because we're working for external changes rather than the internal changes that are at the heart of the gospel. We're confusing people about cause and effect on justification, at least giving the impression that it's a works-based salvation, if not outright selling a works-based salvation. And it falsely magnifies the supposed cost of Christianity that people have to give up so many things. It reminds me of my wife when she was coming to faith at age 23 out of a carnal lifestyle. And as often the case, she was worried about giving up so many things. And the, the friend that was inviting her to church was very good on this and said, you know, don't worry about that. God will take those things from you. God will take those desires from your heart. He didn't go with the angle of, yes, you got to quit doing those things uh, or, you know, just even focusing on those. He quickly dismissed it and said, no, properly, God is going to take those desires from your heart. And that is absolutely correct. Francis Schaeffer says, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. And so we need to practice compassion towards those struggling with various sins. Well, of course they're struggling with sins. They're not in the kingdom of God. God will take those desires from the heart. It's not about how well we behave. It's not about cleaning up our act before we come into the kingdom and embrace God's grace. We embrace God's grace and then the changes begin. Third and related 
it limits the ways that God can work. We put God in the proverbial box. Jesus referred to new wine and old wineskins. And I think for us, some of this always happens, but are you surprised when God moves in a certain direction? When you look at the ministry of Jesus and how he was so rough on the Pharisees and worked in such amazing ways, is that any part of how God moves in your life? Is that any part of the people that you're critiquing as God and the Spirit move in their lives? Often we're limiting the ways God can work through our legalisms. And fourth, we either feel unworthy of doing ministry and so discouraged because we're not meeting the standard, or more likely, if I do feel worthy, I'll focus on behavior and I often end up then in self-righteousness. And so again, the option of pride is revisited. Either way, the devil's happy. He's happy to have us discouraged that we're not meeting our artificial standard, or he's happy that we're prideful about meeting a bogus standard. The fact is that our life is a letter. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 3 and 6. And in bearing God's name, often the legalist drags God's name through the mud. Now, the libertine can do that as well, the carnal Christian, the Christian struggling with various sins, sure. But here the focus is legalism and the particular damage that it does. Chuck Swindoll quotes Lewis Johnson, who says, One of the most serious problems facing the church in Paul's day was legalism, and every day it is the same. Legalism wrenches the joy of the Lord from the Christian believer, and with the joy of the Lord goes his power for vital worship and vibrant service. Nothing is left but cramped, somber, dull, and listless profession. The truth is betrayed, and the glorious name of God becomes a synonym for a gloomy, killjoy. Or as Sheldon Van Auken put it, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug and complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. I want to introduce a theme that I'll come back to later, but it's the tension between both liberty and legalism as stumbling blocks. There's passages that certainly talk about liberty as a stumbling block, but it's also the case that legalism can be a stumbling block as well. People can perceive or misperceive either liberty or legalism as stumbling blocks. Luke 11.52, Jesus says, Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. And there's no easy answer to this in either respect. Both liberty and legalism can be stumbling blocks, and there's slippery slopes here. We have to be careful not to worry too much about that, but perceptions do matter, and so we have to be careful that our liberty and our perceived legalisms are not stumbling blocks to those within and without the faith. Finally, we've talked about how legalism can twist our theology, it can impact our ministry, and it can be devastating to fellowship stemming from how I perceive the walks of other Christians. For one thing, I'm going to tend to focus on their failures, and I'm going to impose inappropriate standards, which are a stumbling block to them. Hugh Halter describes it as going from sanctified to sanctimonious. Sometimes this manifests externally as we seek to control people, as we condescend to those who are not meeting the standards that we've laid out, Internally, we're condemning them at least, right? Even if we never say anything, the attitude of the heart is condemnation. 
And again, none of this is consistent with the ministry of Jesus and the goodness and greatness of God's kingdom. We're called repeatedly to more patience and compassion. We need to be less critical in most cases, particularly about gray issues, particularly about people who are growing in their faith. We put less pressure on people, and we're much less likely to give advice. Ironically, we often then provide better counsel. And this whole approach tends to promote unity rather than unanimity over common standards. And it also tends to avoid fakery and hypocrisy as people look to avoid those judgments. They keep their behaviors underground and you lose transparency, honesty, candor, and so on. As you may have experienced, or at least as you can imagine theoretically, this is absolutely devastating to Christian community and unity. People are not going to be true with each other. They're not going to want to be with each other. They're going to measure things by externals. They're not going to be a lot of fun to be with. One of the things I am blown away by Jesus and his ministry was that even with his perfection, he was still invited to the pagans' parties. He still was someone that the tax collectors and the prostitutes wanted to be with. And the only thing that explains that would be that he was not a legalist and that he led a joy-filled life. People wanted to be with him, and people rarely want to be with legalists. If we're going to have true Christian fellowship, it starts with theology. And if our theology is twisted, if our view of God and our view of how God sees us are twisted, then it's going to cause all sorts of trouble. We're not going to be attractive to unbelievers and we're not going to have very good community inside the church as well, which is meant to strengthen us, which is meant to be appealing to the generation that's in the world, attracting them from the world into the fellowship that's described in Acts 2 and Acts 4. Legalism simply wars against what is possible and what is meant for Christian community and Christian relationship. Eugene Peterson's commentary on Galatians is called Traveling Light, And I love that title for the book, that legalism does not allow us to travel light. First of all, we don't travel much at all. And if we do travel, it's certainly not light. But here's what Eugene Peterson says on this topic. The word Christian means different things to different people. To one person, it means a stiff, uptight, inflexible way of life, colorless and unbending. To another, it means a risky, surprise-filled venture, live tiptoe at the edge of expectation. Either of these pictures can be supported with evidence. There are numberless illustrations for either position in congregations all over the world. But if we restrict ourselves to biblical evidence, only the second image can be supported. The image of the person living zestfully, exploring every experience, pain and joy, enigma and insight, fulfillment and frustration, as a dimension of human freedom, searching through each for sense and grace. If we get our information from the biblical material, there's no doubt that the Christian life is a dancing, leaping, daring life. How then does this other picture get painted in so many imaginations? The community of faith, the very place where we are most likely to experience the free life, is also the very place where we are most in danger of losing it. How true that is. So we start into Galatians. All of us have something to gain here. For some of you, you're serial legalists. Legalism is a lifestyle for you. And here the challenge is huge, but also life-changing. The good news is you can drop the slavery that you hold, the bondage, the limits to what you've done on 
with God in your life, the limits to effectiveness in ministry, the loss of joy, all those things can be left behind, at least in increasing measure. And so my hope and prayer for you is that you would find legalism not to be a lifestyle that you should embrace, that you would put that aside and live according to the positive side of the Peterson quote. For the rest of us, legalism is an event. All of us struggle with this to some extent. We all have tendencies to judge this or that in other people or in ourselves or to imagine that God is measuring us by metrics that we have constructed, not him. Be amazed by the grace and the love of God. Yes, live up to the standards, but not out of duty or a need to, but a get to. The good laws, the good provision that God has given us, those should be followed out of love and grace and a knowledge that we worship a good and great God. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and greatness, and we thank you for your amazing grace, and we pray that we would increasingly live in its abundance in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.